Hello, and welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Colgate Assistant Professor of History and Native American Studies, Ryan Hall. Professor Hall's primary areas of interest include Native North American history, global indigenous history, Western frontiers and borderlands, U.S. and Canadian history, and fittingly, the fur trade. Professor Hall earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Oklahoma and his master's and Ph.D. from Yale University. Some of Hall's distinctions include a 2013 Vernon Casterson Memorial Award from the Agricultural Historical Society for the best article published in agricultural history. In 2015, Hall was awarded the Frederick W. Benecke Dissertation uh, Prize at Yale for his outstanding doctoral dissertation in the field of Western American history. And in 2017, Hall earned a Fulbright Canada Research Chair in Social and Cultural History of Western North America at the University of Calgary. Hall is also the author of the forthcoming book, Beneath the Backbone of the World, Blackfoot People and the North American Borderlands, 1720-1877, published by Chapel Hill University of North Carolina Press. Professor Hall, welcome to 13. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump right into question one. Let's do it. You teach a history and Native American studies course titled Borderlands of North America. And the description states, instead of looking at history from the vantage of national centers, borderland history focuses on the complicated places where empires, nations, and indigenous people have collided, converged, and overlapped over time. Borderlands were and continue to be perplexing places where national identities and boundaries often held little sway and where marginalized peoples sought to forge new paths. Tell us a little bit about that course. Yeah, so uh, this is a really exciting course. It's the, it's the first time I've taught it. Um, so it's a history of borderlands in North American history from the colonial era to the present. Um, and, you know, like the description says, it's, it's trying to reverse the field of uh, focus uh, for history. Um, you know, history, we tend to look at, you know, his, uh, the history of a country or a place from the center outwards. So we learn a lot about, so for American history, we learn a lot about what, you know, presidents or what's happening in Washington, D.C. or New York or Philadelphia or whatever. Um, and we look at how that history sort of radiates out from there. Um, Borderlands history is kind of the exact opposite. You look at the edges of countries or nations or empires, um, those kind of messy, ill-defined places, um, and you try and build out from there and, and see, what, see what's going on at those, at those edges. Um, and I think it's a really powerful field of study uh, for a few reasons. Um, it really gets at unexpected histories uh, in a lot of ways. So, you know, you talk about, uh, you look at a map of early American history. I was doing this with my students just this morning, actually. Um, and it's got all of these, you know, the, the Spanish empire is like in yellow and the French empire is in green and the, and the, the, the British are in blue or whatever. And it's these big splotches and it all looks very neat and orderly, um, and kind of easy to understand. But when you really dig in and look at these places, that was a complete fiction. Those, mm -hmm. those places didn't really exist in that way. Um, 
they're much messier. And a lot of the time, uh, other actors were in control of those places, like especially indigenous people. Um, so borderlands could be places where other sorts of actors were empowered and doing different sorts of things. Um, so it really, it really just changes the way we think about power in early America. Um, we think about geography in early America, which are all sorts of things that I talk about in my book as well. Uh, Borderlands is also really cool. So a lot of the, the course is about the transition from borderlands, we might say, these sort of fuzzy imperial spaces or indigenous spaces to borders. Mm. Um, and how does that transition happen? How do we go from um, this, this sort of... I keep saying fuzzy, but this sort of this sort of uh, ill-defined space to a border wall, something like that, um, or or customs points. Like you can't cross this this line on the map without going through all these steps of security. That sort of thing. Uh, we tend to think of that as a really we, we tend to think of that as natural. We think of these places that if you're if you're going north, you're crossing the 49th parallel, whatever, into Canada. Um, it's natural that you're going to cross these. This, this apparatus, security apparatus, but that's historical. Um, there are specific reasons that that came about. Um, so that's, that's what the course is about, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Are, are there, uh, I, I guess I'm curious as to the different types of borders that you look at, and I guess, mm -hmm. is there one in particular that you find to be either the most fascinating or the most, you know, you say perplexing. I, I wonder if there's one that you feel like has either been the most ill-defined or the most confusing, or I'm curious about like the, the most interesting border area that you tend to cover. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good question. Um, all, all borders are fascinating, Jeremy. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but if you um, had to pick one. Yeah, thing, yeah. If I had know. to pick one uh, border, um, I'm really, I mean, you you can't go wrong with the the Spanish Southwest. Um, just a fascinating place, New Mexico and uh, Texas, essentially. Um, I was just talking about this this morning, so this is where my brain is at. I was just talking, <laughs> lecturing about this to my students this morning. Um, but it's this place. So you know, Santa Fe is 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 besides this tiny place in Florida, St. Augustine, is the oldest European settlement in uh, what is now the United States. Uh, Santa Fe, you know, or New Mexico established in 1598. So it's incredibly old. Um, but it's this place that was so marginal to the Spanish Empire for so long. It was such a backwater to to Mexico and, and, and to Spain. A uh, hundred years after New Mexico was established, the colony of New Mexico, there was still only like a thousand colonists there, or maybe a few thousand colonists there. I mean, just vanishingly small. The the most impoverished Spanish colony mm. in, in the Americas. So it's a complete backwater. It's 1,500 miles away from Mexico City. They call it the journey of death um, to go to Mexico City. So it's this place that's just so isolated from the rest of the empire. Um, and yet it sort of hangs on. Mm. And it's still, you know, uh, until Mexican independence and until it's conquered by the United States and all of that and still there today. Um, so the, the sort of choices that the Spaniards had to make and indigenous people had to make about the presence of these, these strange people in the Southwest, I find fascinating. I find, I find those sort of day-to-day -day interactions in that borderland just endlessly rich. So, yeah, I, I'd, say, I'd say colonial New Mexico is, you know, super fascinating. <laughs> All right.
So in, in your forthcoming book, Beneath the Backbone of the World, Blackfoot People and North American Borderlands, 1720 to 1877, um, can you talk a little bit about the Blackfoot people and their culture at that time? Yeah. Um, so the Blackfoot are the indigenous people of what is now uh, the western half of Montana, more or less, and the southern half of Alberta, which is actually a pretty vast region about the size of Minnesota. Um, and they've been there. The first thing to know about the Blackfoot is they've been there a very long time, um, at least a thousand years, probably much longer than that. So they have this incredibly deep connection to that particular landscape, which is the northwestern corner of the Great Plains. It's like where the plains meet the mountains in the north. Um, so they've been there a really, really long time. Uh, they're a plains indigenous society, uh, which means they live on the Great Plains. Um, they're historically very mobile uh, in that place, uh, not nomadic. Uh, they, they always had specific places they were going, but historically they would move from place to place about 13, 14 times a year hmm. in search of resources, bison, lodgepoles, that sort of thing, uh, sacred historical sites. Um, so there's this really uh, deep connection between Blackfoot people and this really uh, beautiful kind of harsh landscape of the Northwestern Great Plains. The time period that my book covers is a, a time of profound change uh, for the Blackfoot, uh, transformational change. So, you know, they've been in this place for, you know, thousand, couple thousand years. They have this, this really rich culture and tie to this place. Um, around my book, covers the year 1720, roughly, to 1877. Um, and I choose that starting date uh, because that's when things really started to change for the Blackfoot. Um, so first off, horses arrive. So horses are not indigenous to the Americas. They're, they come from Europe. And we tend to associate them with, with Plains indigenous people, the iconic crazy horse and sure. warriors. But they're a pretty new phenomenon. Uh, so horses make their way to Blackfoot country around 1720, coming up from New Mexico through indigenous trade networks, which just, it's hard to even quantify what a big deal that was to the Blackfoot. Uh, journeys that used to take, you know, weeks could be undertaken in days. They could explore the world. Um, they could hunt bison, hunt animals in completely different ways. They could accumulate wealth. They could increase the size of their homes. I mean, it's just so profound. I could go on and on about how, what a big deal a horse is. Also in the 1720s, European trade goods start to filter their way into that part of the North American West, uh, kind of secondhand through indigenous people. But things like metal blades, um, metal tools, hatchets, textiles, tobacco, all of these things are also really transformational um, in warfare and hunting and day-to-day -day life. It's a huge, huge deal. And then third, epidemic diseases also start to sort of make their way into Blackfoot country, uh, European epidemic diseases that they had no familiarity with or, or immunity to. Um, so there's these three things, and they're all sort of converging in Blackfoot country beginning in the early 18th century. And what I was so, found so compelling about this history, I was drawn to this period, um, you know, it's these people who have been there for so long and have this incredibly uh, dynamic and um, lasting 
culture. That's not the word I'm looking for. But and they have to they have to deal with all these changes, and they have to um, they have to kind of reinvent themselves in a lot of different ways. And so there's this 150 year period that I cover after all these changes sort of arrive until their last treaty they signed in 1877 until the, about the same time bison went extinct in that mm. region and they're kind of forced under reservations. Um, and so it's, it's this period where they're, they're grappling. It's a new world for them. Mm. Everything has changed for them. Uh, so they have, to, they have to figure out a way forward. So that's what's going on with the Blackfoot during okay. the, the period that I write about. How many yeah. people are we talking about in that, in that area? Um, 10 to 15,000, I would say. That would be the historical population of the Blackfoot. It's really hard to pin down because these diseases were so destructive. But I think that's, the, that's been my guess. Okay. Yeah, which is not a huge number, um, but it's, a, it's an enormous geographical space that they dominate despite that fairly low population. Um, like I said, several hundred miles across, I mean, about the size of Minnesota. So a, a pretty massive area despite the, their small numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the Hudson Bay Company and maybe its mm-hmm. interactions with the native peoples of North America, but, you know, um, more specifically the Blackfoot? Yeah. So the Hudson's, uh, the Hudson's, so it's, uh, it's funny, the bay is called Hudson Bay and the company is called Hudson's Bay, oh. which is <laughs> this art kind of archaic usage of the term. Um, so it's the HBC, Canadian state, say the joke in Canada is that stands for here before Christ because mm. they've been around for so long. It's mm. this extremely venerable uh, company and institution. It was founded in 1670. Um, and it was basically the, the British fur trading company um, for the great Northwest, sort of the Western Canada. Uh, so it was founded in 1670. They, the way it, the trade worked at first was British people would basically camp out on Hudson Bay, uh, just like on the shore of the bay, and they'd wait for indigenous people to come to them. Uh, these, were, these, these are called like middlemen traders. And these, these usually Cree and Assiniboine people would canoe several hundred miles inland to Hudson Bay, or from inland to the Hudson Bay, um, and they would bring furs to the British, trade them there, and then return to the West. Um, and when they went back west, they'd meet with other indigenous peoples and, and buy furs from them. Then they'd canoe them back to Hudson Bay and sell them for a huge markup. So these middlemen are these entrepreneurs who are kind of pushing the fur trade into the interior, but they're indigenous people. Okay. So that's how, um, that's how the fur trade reaches the Blackfoot at first, actually, is these middlemen who are going back and forth, these Cree and Assiniboine guys, who are going about a thousand miles back and forth between Alberta and Hudson Bay bringing furs and bringing European goods back and forth. In the 1780s, um, everything sort of turned upside down. There's this huge smallpox epidemic uh, that wipes out a lot of the middlemen. And the Hudson Bay Company is kind of forced to go inland on their own and establish direct ties and make fur trading posts in the interior. Um, And that's actually the city of Edmonton. In Alberta, it was one of those fur trading posts. It's right on the border of Blackfoot territory, the northern border. Um, so that's that's the story of the Hudson's Bay. That's a little, you know, hey, yeah. Uh, cliff notes. Yeah, that's a little Canadian fur trade history for you. Um, yeah, the the interactions between the Hudson's Bay Company. There's also another company, a French speaking company called the Northwest Company, who was like the rival at the time. 
it's really interesting. The Blackfoot, the way I see it, they really um, valued access to trade, access to guns, uh, ammunition, gunpowder, um, any like domestic tools, hatchets, pots, all these things are incredibly useful to them and essential to them and empower them. So trade is an empowering thing for Blackfoot people. Um, but they also are very savvy in making sure that they get those benefits and the other indigenous people who are maybe their enemies uh, don't get access to those things. So the Hudson Bay Company does this, this really fast expansion into what is now Alberta in the 1780s and 1790s. But the Blackfoot basically stop them in their tracks and say, you can trade with us, but you're not going any farther west because we want to make sure that people farther to our west, people like Kootenai people, um, people in the Rocky Mountains, uh, Salish people don't have access to those things. And if the Blackfoot have access to all these guns and things like that and the people to their west don't, then the Blackfoot have the upper hand. So the fur trade becomes this really, by sort of manipulating the fur trade and making and deciding who these British guys can and can't trade with, the Blackfoot really empower themselves and they grow mm. more powerful rather than less powerful during this era. Yeah. Um, so your book concludes 1877. Mm -hmm. um, you said you picked that because that was a, there was a treaty. Mm -hmm. And then what happened to the Blackfoot after that? So they did they give up their lands? Like what? what yeah, so... Um, Blackfoot people today, uh, Blackfoot homelands have been reduced to reservations. There's a reservation in Montana called the Blackfeet Reservation. It's right next to Glacier National Park. And then there's three reserves, which is basically the Canadian word for reservation, um, in Canada, right across the border on the Canadian side. So their, their homelands have been reduced from this huge, vast area to these four relatively small reserves or reservations. Um, you know, what happened after the treaties, it's a really tough history. It's really hard. Um, I don't go into it in, in detail in the book. It's, it's an incredibly difficult period. So the time of the last treaty, the late 1870s, there is the, the bison basically go extinct in that region at that time. So it becomes impossible for indigenous people to um, sustain themselves traditionally through the hunt. There is also, um, uh, so there's a, a lot of settlement that's going on. So settlers are coming in and sort of taking up a lot of the lands that they used to use, which is also kind of forcing them onto reservations. Um, and to get food and to survive and, and to get uh, medical care, that sort of thing, they have to go to the, to the reservation. So they're basically forced to go into these places to survive. Um, and a lot of them don't. There's... Uh, in these early years of the reservation, there are, there are famines uh, where there's not the government, Canada or the U.S., doesn't provide enough food, hmm. um, a lot of disease, a lot of disease that you get when you're weak and malnourished, things like tuberculosis wreaked absolute havoc on Blackfoot people. Um, and then this is also the beginning of what we call the assimilation era, where in both the U.S. and Canada at the exact same time, the government's really... Now that Native people are all on reservations, they set about trying to change, destroy their culture um, and make them culturally um, assimilated, I guess. 
so during the same period where they're facing all these other challenges, the children are, are being taken away and being sent to residential schools mm-hmm. and boarding schools um, where they're forced to learn English and not, not speak their language anymore. These are also very unhealthy and abusive places. It's a really, really hard time. Uh, so this period, you know, the beginning of the reservation era especially is incredibly um, difficult, incredibly bleak, incredibly destructive period uh, in not just Blackfoot history, but any indigenous history. And um, I, I'd say they're still recovering from it. Hmm. Yeah. So how did you go about doing research for this book? And I guess what are some of the records and materials that you were able to dig through um, mm-hmm. that, you know, helped illuminate the the, the history there, I, you know, people you talked to or places you went. I'm very curious. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing I'm proud about in this book is that I, st- I did a lot of research in both the U.S. and in Canada, um, which might not sound like that big a deal, but, uh, you know, it's actually hasn't been done that much with Blackfoot history. Um, the way the historical profession is co- sort of excuse me, organized is, you know, you have uh, historians of the United States or you have uh, historians of Canada and that's how jobs are listed, that's how classes are structured, that sort of thing. So people are really used to studying whatever country they, they're tagged with, <laughs> more or less. Sure. Uh, so for a long time, people, and this is applied to Blackfoot, a lot of Blackfoot scholars, or scholars of the Blackfoot, rather, um, have like Americans kind of focus on what's happening in the American side of the border. And then Canadians sort of write about what's happening on the Canadian side of the border. And the two, you know, the two don't really meet a lot of the time. Uh, So one thing I really set out to do was to dismantle that and put Blackfoot homelands, Blackfoot country at the center of it and not see it as a U.S. history or Canadian history, but a Blackfoot centered history. So, um, the Hudson's Bay Company archives are in Winnipeg. So fur trade records are a really big deal for me. Um, there's also uh, papers of the American fur trade. A lot of those are in St. Louis or in microfilm. So fur trade records, I've done a lot of that. Um, but, you know, a central challenge of Native history is making sure that you're not only reading what white people said about these things mm-hmm. because the the, you know, those sources are easier to access. They're, write, they're written with a type of literacy we're used to. Um, so the central challenge is like, how do you, how do you access native voices? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've tried in a few ways. I, I've tried to access as many oral histories as I can. There have been a lot of people that have done oral history interviews, especially in the early 20th century with Blackfoot people. So I've mined those quite a bit. There's a huge collection in Calgary at the Glenbow Museum. Um, So that sort of thing, any sort of interview with Blackfoot people where Blackfoot people are telling this story, I really try and privilege that. There's some really great scholarship by Blackfoot people. Um, Rosalind Lapierre uh, is somebody I really respect who's written a a great book on Blackfoot history recently, and she is Blackfoot. Um, I've also tried to spend a lot of time in the place and try and get out of the library a little bit. Um, Pretty much every summer for the last 10 years, I've, I've tried to go to Blackfoot country, which, you know, uh, Western Montana or, or Southern Alberta. Um, I'm not conduct, I'm not, you know, an anthropologist and, and I, I haven't conducted oral history interviews as part of my method. Um, but I have 
tried to make a point to visit these communities, to talk with people uh, who, in, in the historical community, the Blackfoot historical community, ask for advice, that sort of thing, make sure they're aware of what I'm doing. Um, and finally, just to spend some time, I think part of the method for a book like this, and a lot of this book is about place and how Blackfoot people maintained this place and used the geography of this place. I spent a lot of time just sort of driving around the big wide open spaces of Southern Alberta um, and visiting sites and just trying to soak it in. Uh, there's real power and value to that as well. Yeah. With all of your work examining how indigenous peoples lived on and across national borders, I wonder if there's some of that work that might be applied um, to, I guess, our nation's current border debate. Is, mm -hmm. is there, or is there, um, is the, does any of your work looking at how the native peoples lived across borders have any kind of correlation or is there anything that can be learned from that? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. I think that thinking about indigenous history, um, challenges us to not like I said earlier, to sort of denaturalize these borders as something that um, is needs to be sort of fixed in place and and, and walled off, um, as in one half is is one thing and the uh, one side of the border is one thing and the other side is another. Um, when you start looking at indigenous history, you see you really get a, a true sense of how um, recent and uh, sort of imaginary these lines are. Um, Blackfoot uh, country, Blackfoot territories is pretty much cut exactly in half by the 49th parallel, which is just a line somebody drew on a map in 1818 in London. I mean, it's just, it's, it has nothing to do with the geography of the place. Um, and so it makes you think about this, this region, not as like the U.S. or Canada, but as a in a different frame as a Blackfoot homeland. And there's a lot of transnational indigenous homelands. Um, here in upstate New York, um, there are Haudenosaunee uh, homelands that cross the border. Uh, in Arizona, where I was uh, living before I, I came here, Tona Autumn people, Yaqui people have, have homelands on both sides of the border. I think that if you really start to take indigenous homelands and indigenous sovereignty seriously, um, you really need to dismantle the idea that this border uh, has to be absolute, I guess. And it, it also makes you think about the damage that can be done by hardening a border because it, it can divide people um, and divide communities that far predate this, uh, the United States or Canada or Mexico. Um, so, you know, Blackfoot communities, for example, a lot of people have cousins or family on either side of the border. They have important religious ties on either side of the border. They have ceremonies they want to go to, things they need to uh, bring back and forth. And the, the tightening of border security can cause major, um, can disrupt that in really major ways, which is something we need to take seriously. So you're teaching a core course at Colgate right now that's titled Native People of the Great Plains. And in that course description, you state that the Native people of the Great Plains are among the most familiar yet least understood cultural groups in all of North America. Why mm -hmm. is that? Yeah, um, Plains Indigenous people are kind of the iconic 
uh, quote unquote Indians um, in American culture. Uh, the right up the road here, there's a, a gift shop, uh, the Teepee mm-hmm. uh, Teepee gift shop. I don't know much about it. I d- I've just driven by it. Um, the Teepee, for example, as this sort of what everybody, the, the sort of iconic indigenous dwelling that we kind of it gets transplanted to different parts of the continent um, was a plains plains thing. People in this part of the country in upstate New York did not live in teepees. They lived in longhouses. Um, also, the, the, the big feathered headdress, that sort of thing, uh, that's a plains headdress. Uh, but it's also been transplanted elsewhere. So plains indigenous culture... I would say largely through Hollywood films, the Western genre, which was so dominant for the first, you know, 50 years of of Hollywood, um, really made Plains Indigenous people the stand-in for all Indigenous people. So they're incredibly iconic. And you can just name so so many films that put Plains Indian people near the center, things like uh, The Searchers or Dances with Wolves or things like that. So... Everybody has sort of image in mind. Or you go to the Black Hills and the largest statue, if it's ever completed, the largest statue on earth will be the statue of Crazy Horse. Um, the, uh, yeah, Plains Indigenous people have become this iconic thing, but I don't think people really, so they all, every, people tend to recognize these sort of cultural markers, but people don't t- really know that much about Plains Indigenous culture beyond that. So that's kind of my starting point for the course is how do we disentangle myth and history mm. and really uh, understand or try and understand as much as we can Plains indigenous cultures. Nice. So you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I kind of want to dig in um, just slightly more that um, your American Indian history course um the description for that says that typically American history is told from the perspective of European colonizers with the story beginning on the East Coast and expanding uh, west across the mm-hmm. continent. And then you ask the question, how does American history look when we reverse this perspective and put the continent's original people at the center of the story? Mm-hmm. How do you go about telling that story? I'm, it, it's very interesting because you always think of you know a typical elementary school lesson of like, you know, colonization and, and just like the westward expansion. So curious to hear how. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a challenge, <laughs> I would say. Um, something I'm constantly trying to reckon with because we do have, uh, as Americans, a really powerful historical narrative in mind. And uh, it's really centered on the, the, the colonial process from the colonizer's perspective. That's, that's how we learn American history. Um, I suppose one way to go about it is to try and, and not behave as if indigenous people only exist when they come into contact with non-indigenous people, which is how you know they're, they're often treated in you know traditionally in textbooks, that sort of thing, right? Um, so how do you go about that? A couple things, I guess. Emphasize that there is a that history doesn't begin in 1492. Uh, that there is a much deeper history. There is change over time. There are incredibly diverse and changing societies in North America before Columbus sets foot here. So history doesn't begin in 1492. It also doesn't end in 1890. Um, so that's one thing that you emphasize that that I would emphasize is the continuity of the past. 
uh, that it's not defined by Europeans. Also, putting indigenous homelands, this is something my book does, tries to do as well, is put indigenous homelands at the center of the story. So something like Blackfoot country. Um, it doesn't just appear when, when Europeans get there. If I were to tell the history of the fur trade through the lens of that, you know, it, I'd begin when Meriwether Lewis or some, you know, some British trader arrives in this place. Um, but it has its own... Uh, its own logic, its own sort of uh, wholeness prior to all of that. Uh, so if you put indigenous homelands at the center of the story and, and study colonialism as something that impacts that place that already exists, that can be a really powerful way to change the narrative. You can you do the same thing in upstate New York. Um, any place. is Every place in North America is an indigenous homeland mm -hmm. at some point or another. Um, so that's, that's one way to do it. Um, one other thing that I would say, uh, I think that pushing against that idea of American history is something that sort of progresses from the East Coast to the West Coast, and it's the story of story of like expanding frontiers of white settlers, that sort of thing. Um, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, is that's not really how colonial change worked. Things moved way, changes moved way in advance of actual settlers or actual... <laughs> white people on the ground, um, things like horses or epidemic diseases or, or guns or tools or environmental change, uh, violent destabilization, those things all kind of rippled across the continent, sometimes hundreds of years before any, any settlement or any quote-unquote exploration actually happened in these places. So we see change in some place like Blackfoot country way earlier um, and in really profound ways. If you approach it that way, as opposed to the traditional sort of contact narrative, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so since you explore the history of Native peoples in the U.S. and Canada, mm -hmm. uh, and realizing you could probably teach an entire course on this subject, um, yeah. I did want to ask about how the two nations, right, um, how the um, experience of the indigenous people in each country, I guess, differs. Like, how did each country... I don't know. That's probably a terrible way to phrase it, but I'm trying to think of like, <clears throat> how did Canada, um, what was the experience of indigenous people dealing with the government of Canada versus the government of the U.S. Um, in, I guess, the time periods that you mostly look at? Yeah, that's a really good question. One I think about a lot and there's not an easy answer to it, I suppose. <laughs> um, you know, I've spent, after I, I, you know, so I do U.S. and Canadian history. I also spent two and a half years living in Canada, teaching at the University of Toronto and the University of Calgary. So um, I, I've gotten some exposure to how Canadians think about their history, too. Um, I think Canadians would tend to emphasize difference in their history and in their indigenous history, while Americans would be more likely to emphasize similarity. Mm. And I'm one of those Americans. I see these histories as very similar. Uh -huh. um, I think the, f the fundamentals of the Canadian indigenous experience are very closely parallel to those of the United States. Um, you have, I mean, you have, you know, periods of, I mean, you have enormous, uh, devastating ecological change and disease. You have periods of um, exchange, kind of what you call the fur trade era, that sort of thing. Um, but really, the similarities 
are very stark when you start looking at the 19th century and histories of dispossession. The mechanism, the law and how land was, um, who had titled land is a little different, but the, the, the mechanism of indigenous dispossession was the same in the U.S. and Canada. It was the treaty system. And so the Blackfoot on the north side of the border and the south side of the border uh, basically were, lost their land in the same way. It was through signing treaties. So that sort of mechanism was the same. The assimilation era that I, that I talked about earlier, boarding schools, exactly the mm. same um, in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, those sort of devast- – there wasn't this, the same number of – I think Canadians would say – there weren't the sort of massacres, the, the quote-unquote Indian Wars of the 1860s and 70s that you see in the U.S. You don't see that in Canada. Um, but the, so there wasn't that sort of um, really uh, spectacular, gruesome moments of violence in Canada. But the overall sort of structural violence, I would say, is the same hmm. between the United States and Canada. These histories of dispossession, assimilation, cultural genocide is the same. Um, and the position of Native people in both countries today, I, I would say in both countries, by many uh, measures, Native people are the most socially and economically marginalized groups in the U.S. and Canada. Hmm. Um, reservations and reserves are very difficult, are places that are facing a lot of really difficult challenges on both sides of the border. So the, the similarities are, are, there are so many of them. I, differences today... You know, living in Canada, indigenous issues are much more front and center in Canada. My students were much more plugged into what was happening with indigenous people in Canada. Um, They cared about it, that sort of thing. Um, Much more more so than the United States. Partially because in the United States, there are lots of um, sort of social and racial justice issues um, that, you know, uh, are not as big in Canada. So gotcha. the, yeah. this, the native issues often get kind of crowded out in the United States at the front page, you might say. Hmm. Um, so they're much more front and center in Canada. I'd say in Canada, there's more of an emphasis on what they call reconciliation. Uh, so truth and reconciliation commissions, they did one for the, the re- reserve schooling system uh, a few years ago, which has caused a, a real national conversation in Canada, reckoning with the history of assimilation. There's almost an identical history in the United States, and there's nothing even remotely similar mm. as far as a, a sort of official recognition um, or official sort of unpacking by the government of what happened in those places. So I'd say that the histories are are much more similar than Americans and Canadians might think, um, but they're being talked about and approached right now a little differently. That's interesting. Um, so in 2013, uh, you won an award for uh, writing the best article published in agricultural history. What is the best article published, and what was it about? <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm digging back, reaching back here um, in my brain. So I started out um, as a historian of settlers. Hmm. Uh, I thought I was going to be writing about kind of my people who are. <laughs> I'm not indigenous. I'm. I should have said that. I'm not native. I'm. Um, a descendant of farmers in Iowa. I thought I was going to write the history of, of settlement and settler society and settler culture. And that's what my um, first article was about. It was oh. actually based on my senior thesis at the University of Oklahoma. Well, what about, changed your mind? If it, You know, I guess what, what made you leave that path? Yeah. Um, 
I was well. Okay, so let me let me tell you the the article really okay. quickly, and then I'll, I'll then I'll, I'll tell you what changed my mind. So the article was I kind of used the Grapes of Wrath, which is one of my favorite books, and this town of Salisaw, Oklahoma, where the Jodes come from, um, is kind of the, the fictional starting point in the book. I kind of looked at what actually happened in Salisaw during the Great oh, Depression. That's neat. And I found that the roots of farmers sort of misery and dispossession in that re- maybe not dispossession but uprootedness in that region and just poverty didn't start in the 30s which is kind of what the book talks about there's like this romantic frontier time and then they lost everything when the banks took the land but my article is like there never was this sort of idyllic time they were always uprooted they were always moving around they've always been poor and they're just the okies are this sort of permanent migratory underclass so it's kind of a bleak article. Um, <laughs> like the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, like the Grapes of Wrath. So I think I did John Steinbeck. Uh, you know, I didn't, you know, I expanded on his idea. So it's even bleaker than he said. Um, so that's why I went, I, went, I went to graduate school. Um, so that was at Oklahoma. And then I went to graduate school at Yale. And I thought I was, I wanted to do Western history. I just love the West as a place. And I was just so excited by what was happening in native history. So works like uh, Pekahamalainen's The Comanche Empire, uh, Ned Blackhawk's Violence Over the Land. Ned ended up being my advisor. He got hired by Yale after I came there. It was very lucky for me. Um, Really talked about, like I said earlier, these changes sweeping across across native North America in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, way before I'm used to thinking about those places, like way before settlement and the Oregon Trail and all that stuff, that there was this incredible drama playing out across the continent um, that I knew nothing about. And historians don't know much about it either and haven't thought much about it. But it's so transformative and it's so epic in its scope. And it's all kind of happening off camera. You know, like yeah. we're we're focusing historians, we're focusing what's happening in Jamestown or whatever, um, in, in on the coast. Yet in the interior, there's so much happening, and we just uh, we have so little handle on it, and that just unlocked my historical imagination. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll leave the the Okies behind, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow this interest. I like yeah. the off-camera idea. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Um, so we are, uh, we're at question 13. You made it to wow, the end. already. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this one's going to be a really tough one. All right. I, I hope you're ready. Uh, <laughs> I did some searching on Google for you, uh, and I didn't find a lot, but I did find a, a famous runner uh, <laughs> named Ryan Hall, uh, who is the only American to have ever run a sub two-hour and five-minute marathon. So have you ever run a marathon? <laughs> and if so, did anyone think you were a champion long-distance runner? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Ryan Hall came to Colgate this semester. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he talked to the track team, I think. Um, did you meet him? No, I uh... didn't. I should have. But I think people were very confused around campus that there were all these <laughs> these signs up talking about, you know, Ryan Hall. But it was this picture of this blonde guy. Um, no, I have not run a marathon. Um, yeah, so... I guess Ryan Hall's fame has kind of made me ungoogleable in some ways, you know, <laughs> that, you know, it, it, it's hard to find me. Um, but I don't know. Maybe once the book comes out, people will. There you go. Will be able to find me. All right. <laughs> 
Quick editorial note here. Uh, after the recording, uh, we learned that the runner, Ryan Hall, is indeed a Colgate alumnus. Well, that was 13. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much, Ryan, for, uh, for being a lot on of fun. the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast. Email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number with your thoughts about the show. And let us know if you have any questions that you'd like to have answered. Uh, for more in-depth stories about the scholarship and research at Colgate, visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com. Have a wonderful week, and as always, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.